Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand channels channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bede Haynes and today we have Edda Gunnigan. Edda has written a book called Root and Branch published by the University of New South Wales Press which is out now and Edda is an Australian woman with Turkish ancestry and I'll introduce her now. Good morning Edda. Hi, Bede, and hi, everyone. Now, Edda, your book is called Root and Branch, Essays on Inheritance. Could you please tell me how you came to write this book and what the significance of the title and the subtitle are? Um, sure. I can kind of give you the long-ish version, if you like, of the kind of um, history of how I came to write it. It's like I actually started off writing fiction more so. Um, that was kind of my primary mode until about 2015 or 16. But I think I've always been a kind of someone who's inclined to do a lot of personal writing and keep diaries and journals, which I talk about in the book. So it's maybe a more natural medium for me. Um, so I just found myself, I think, writing a little bit more personal writing in around 2015 or 16, I'd say, and I just so happened to submit something that I'd written to um, Scribe Publications' nonfiction award, and it was longlisted. And I think that kind of made me think, oh, hold on a moment, this is kind of <laughs> this is the kind of writing that I read a lot of. You know, I, when I was 12, I started reading Augustine Burroughs' work, which totally inappropriate for a 12-year-old, but. Um, it's almost like I had this disconnect in my mind that, you know, there were memoirists and personal essayists out there and then there was me and I thought writing was all fiction. But <clears throat> so to try to keep a long story short, I found myself writing a little bit more personal writing around that time. And then I was lucky enough to go on to publish in the Sydney Review of Books so that the essay um, in the book Second City was first published in Sydney Review of Books and kind of tracks my relationship with Western Sydney and then um, the piece that was longlisted for the Scribe Nonfiction Award was published in Mianjian. So I kind of just found myself building more of a profile or a reputation, I'd say, as an essayist. Um, and then it was kind of like that until I met um, my publisher, Harriet McEnany at New South. She saw me reading um uh, at a launch for a friend, Eleanor Savage, who also published a fantastic essay collection called Blue Breeze. And she reached out to me and sort of said, do you have a, um, a book proposal or outline 
And I did, and kind of the rest is history. So that's kind of the history of the book um, and how it came to be called Root and Branch, Essays on Inheritance. Um, I guess that the core themes of the book circle around this question of what are the limits um, and the bounds of what we inherit from our parents and ancestors, especially as a second-generation migrant. I think we're often told... um, or we find ourselves feeling that we're caught between two worlds, you know, and there's the homeland, the motherland, and then there's the place you found yourself. And I think it leads to a lot of struggles around belonging um, because you have your roots, you know, and then you have all the ways in which you are torn up and out and away from those roots when you grow up in another country that your parents weren't born in. Um, and a lot of that for me is tied up with class. And this is a common tale, I think, for a lot of second generation migrants. Your parents move someplace because they want you to have access to more opportunities. And then you get that education and then you go to university, which is something that my parents at least never had the opportunity to do. Um, and then that suddenly means you've unlocked an earning potential that they will never have. And, you know, that kind of separates you from them in some ways. So I guess I've just always found myself interested in that question of how to be here, how to be present in my life. (laughs) Um, And in Australia, which, you know, is kind of, quote unquote, not my home, but it's the only home I have. And then that question even is kind of complicated by the fact that we are here all of us who are not First Nations are here as kind of settler colonists. So I guess that is what Root and Branch essays on inheritance is getting at, you know, um, <laughs> how are we torn up and away from those roots, but how can we also have a kind of robust full life here? Mm. Okay, thank you for that. The book begins with an essay called A Rock is a Hard Place. Uh, first of all, one comment I wanted to make on that. There's a sentence in it on page 15 where you're talking about a story and you say the same year the story was shortlisted for Monash University Undergraduate Creating Creative Writing Prize. Then you say, although it did not win. And I had to make a comment like, why would you say although you got nominated for the prize? I thought that was I thought that was enough. Anyway, I'd be happy with that. Um, the next question is the book has this practice within it where you have dialogue between people and there's another language written down, which I assume is Turkish, and it's written in Turkish and there's no translation. What is the thinking there? Hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I've that's a question I've, I've been asked a couple of times, So, which is great because it's given me the opportunity to really think through and kind of discover all the new dimensions as to why I did that. So this is going to be a multi-part answer. I hope that's okay. <laughs> the first is... Um, that it just feels more organic and natural that way. It feels less stilted for me. You know, you have these, again, as a second-gen migrant, you have these conversations that are usually in this kind of blended language. I'll speak back in English maybe or mostly Turkish, but everything I get said to me is in Turkish. And to write it any any other way I think would be to interrupt the flow and introduce some kind of stiltedness at least that's how I felt um but I can see that that is no doubt alienating to a reader who may feel a like they just have to let it wash over them and then there are some things they just won't get out of the text or b that you have to go to google translate um 
But for me, I think there is kind of a, and it feels important to me to have done that because um, when writing, you know, there's, I think a lot of people who live in diaspora, who have grown up as a migrant um, in this country, the feeling that one has a lot of the time is of being an outsider. And it was kind of interesting to me to think about flipping the tables a little bit and have people who may not speak Turkish or who are possibly monolingual or whose only language is English to kind of experience that, you know, what does it feel like to feel like an outsider? What does it feel like to not fully understand everything that's going on around me? Because that is such a common experience for a lot of people who've come to this country later in life. Um, And then maybe the third reason, I guess, would be something around the fact that I think it's kind of important to give the Turkish language the kind of weight that it deserves. I talk a lot about Turkish artistry, you know, poems and music and film that I appreciate that comes out of the Turkish world. And I want that to be given due credit that those texts are kind of important to me and the language is important to me. So I've tried to do my best to (laughs) convey it in all its kind of beauty, I guess. Um, And then finally, I think maybe sometimes there's a protective element in that a lot of the untranslated Turkish are kind of tricky conversations, maybe not the most pleasant conversations. (laughs) So um, by not translating them, I think that kind of means that there's a little bit of mystery that stays around them. The next essay I would like to talk about is Second City. For those not listening who don't live in Australia or in Sydney, I understand the meaning of Second City to be that there's parts of Sydney that are a second city, a second, a, a sort of lower class city within the metropolis of Sydney. The first question here is, you've already mentioned in our discussion, talking about the migrant experience between Turkey and Australia. Is the book also trying to draw a migrant experience between people living in one part of a city and people living in another part of a city? Mm, yeah, that's a really interesting question. Thank you. Um well, sure. I think I was talking with a friend actually the other day who was reading the book and yeah, their impression was that they kind of really resonated with um, me discussing my own kind of personal quote unquote migration, if you like, from growing up in the Western suburbs to now moving to the inner West, which is where I've lived for the past, I'd say nearly 10 years. Um, so certainly that is an element and I think class plays into that quite a bit um so you're totally right that second city holds that meaning um but I guess I'm also kind of fascinated by the growing reputation of Parramatta as it's kind of being called the second CBD as well of Sydney and kind of what the implications of that are as it is gentrifying and attracting different kinds of people who wish to live there for work and leisure etc um and just kind of asking that question of what it means to resist gentrification when gentrification is something that actually brings economic development to a city and improves living standards, but which is complicated by the fact that that improvement is what displaces people. But then I think that my view on that is that, you know, if you take a really long look at the history of Australia, it is a history of displacement. You know, the founding of this country is based on um, huge acts of violence. So, yeah, I think Second City contains all of those different meanings. And in addition to migration, I think the question of displacement is at the heart of that essay. And with the western suburbs of Sydney, the book, as I read it, doesn't 
romanticised life in the western suburbs of Sydney. It sort of, when you read it, you think that this probably isn't the, the best place. If you could choose anywhere to live in Sydney, you might not necessarily choose here. But one thing that you do bring out is conversations between people, often in restaurants or in cafes, and the owners of those businesses, which is not, which to me at least seems a little bit unique from I live in the inner west as well, and I don't see that as much. Could you comment on how you, in this book, what perception you would, what picture you're trying to paint of Western Sydney and, and the, the culture on the streets out there? Mm, that's yeah, such a big question. Um, I guess the tr- you're right that it did feel kind of important and possibly unique <laughs> for me to kind of convey the kind of all sides of that visit to the kebab shop for example because I think the kebab shop is so much the cornerstone of Australian life you know it's kind of used as this kind of big metaphor or metonym a lot of the time for you know Australia's successful multiculturalism you hit up the kebab shop at midnight and you hang out with your friends etc and I kind of always wondered about who gets cut out of that kind of depiction um and you know we had this great moment with the halal snack pack and it was like this big political thing and Sam Desiari was raiding all the HSPs and blah 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 but I guess I've I've always having grown up knowing kebab shop owners and workers I think I've always kind of thought well do you ever do we who are on that side of the exchange ever talk to those people or learn anything about them the answer is often no um and yeah these are just people that I know and it was kind of important to me to convey the wide range of life experiences that they um that have brought them to be kebab shop workers you know often they are highly educated actually the issue is is that their credentials don't get recognized in australia or that they're on short-term visas or that's simply the easier way to make money in this country is to open a kebab shop um so yeah i think that was kind of important to me um to portray another aspect in the book and I, re- I do like the contrast in the book between different parts of Sydney and the way the you as the person who wrote the book it seems to me perceives those and you're trying to tell or you're at least giving your insight to the reader and the reader can do with it what they will one point I did note and I'm, I'm not sure if this is intentional or just the reality of your life is the scenes in western Sydney as you were just saying often have interactions between the people and shopkeepers, there's a sort of noise, a bustle about it. And then there's another scene where you talk about going walking around Petersham, Crystal Street, Petersham Park. And in those scenes, your mind is taken away by earphones or listening to podcasts. And so it's as though there's not as much noise in the atmosphere. Is that something you've experienced? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a really interesting observation. <laughs> um, thank you for reading it kind of closely. That's lovely. Um, yeah, I think to actually get back to your, your question that you did pose earlier, you know, what is the reality of life in the Western suburbs? Yeah, I think noise is certainly a reality. Um, it is true that, um, if you were to look at a breakdown of the demographics of the inner West versus the Western suburbs, you're more likely to find people of color and indigenous people and people who live in lower socioeconomic 
brackets there. Um, and it has been significant to me as someone who cares about the kind of material conditions of people's lives. How do we live? How do we work? What kind of access to healthcare do we have? All of those things that are kind of seemingly unsexy. Um, it has been important to me to depict that that as the reality of living in the Western suburbs. Yes, we have an extremely rich cultural life for sure, but the reality is that so much infrastructure is under-resourced in Western Sydney and it is a tale of two cities a lot of the time. Like just look at the most recent um, COVID lockdowns. The kind of rules that were applied to the Western suburbs were far more um, uh, stringent and the policing was... Far more sick. And then the fact that their COVID, the fact that there were COVID transmission rates higher in the western suburbs has kind of everything to do with the high density housing that people live in, and the fact that there are usually more people per dwelling in these kinds of homes. So, again, that's all kind of boring, maybe nuts and bolts, but that is the reality of living in the western suburbs. Just under resourcing of roads, schools, hospitals—that is so much of what forms living there, which isn't me getting down on the Western suburbs. I love the Western suburbs. Um, but you're right that I don't think it's something to be romanticized because romanticizing it is what stops us from actually advocating for better resourcing. Um, but yes, to circle back to the question of noise and hustle and bustle, <laughs> I think maybe for me, moving to the inner West has been my way of kind of finding <laughs> a little bit more peace, but that has a lot to do with my own mental health. I think, um, I feel that maybe my childhood was a little more turbulent than I would have liked. <laughs> so that kind of peace that I've acquired probably has a lot to do with the mental work that's gone in as well, not just the movement of kind of geographic location. Mm. So um, mental health does come up in the book and I think some of the next essays I'd like to discuss will raise that. The first one is called gothic body in two parts um i'd like you to explain the title to that essay and then part one's called anthropod you're going to know how to say that better than i am because i'm not used to saying it <laughs> anthropography which i think means eating human flesh yeah thank you for not making me pronounce it i don't think i would have gotten it myself <laughs> um yeah i'm just trying to kind of think through the genesis of this essay I found my so yeah it is written in two parts um and it kind of is just tracking my and my family's relationship with our bodies and how weight has been treated inside the family growing up and how and I suspect this is something that a lot of women and possibly even men can relate to. You know, you just develop these disordered eating habits and diet culture and your body is always bad. And and then you start to think of your body as this kind of site of horror, you know. I just distinctly remember growing up and especially when puberty hit, I was just horrified. <laughs> I felt a lot of shame, which has to do with, you know, growing up in this society. You're always kind of feeling vigilant about something terrible happening to you as a woman and... I think I kind of started to think of that, you know, what if we thought about this horror that we experienced through gothic horror tropes? Um, because bodies are horrific, I think, you know, they they are these things that expel liquids and pus and, you know. So I started to try to think about playing with that 
trope a little bit. Um, so that's why it's called Gothic Body. And then in two parts is the fact that it's two different stories of times that I felt this kind of body horror. The first time talking about how our, my family treats bodies and weight and the second time talking about an incident of um, – I guess I'd say partially racial and sexual harassment on the bus when I was riding uh, the bus late at night with um, my ex-partner. So it is a two-part story, but then I kind of, you know, thought about bodies chopped up. So, (laughs) and then, yes, the first part is called that word that I won't dare pronounce, eating human flesh, because I think there is something, this this impulse that I think we sometimes as women, and again, I don't mean to imply that it's only just women that experience fraught relationships with their bodies, etc. But there's this kind of devouring impulse that we have to criticize each other and ourselves, and it eats you up, truly. Um, so I think that's what I kind of thought is was interesting. It's this kind of self-cannibalizing impulse that a lot of people possess when they try to make themselves smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm. And could I ask a, a a sort of writery type question? Say an essay like this, Gothic Body in Two Parts, could you give our audience some insight into how you would go about conceiving this? So how does how does this thing end up on the page? Because it seems quite structured. You have, as you said, you've got all these referencing back to the to Gothic um, novels and gothic concepts and then it's got these parts one and parts two how in your mind does something like an essay like this come together Mm, yeah um i think that this essay is yeah draws from kind of two to three key formal traditions maybe one being memoir there are some highly personal anecdotes that i recount And I think it probably started off as me trying to get my feelings out about these interactions I'd had or the incident on the bus and just wanting to tell that plain story. And then I guess when it came time to thinking more about theme, I inserted these kind of little nods to horror um, tropes and styles, you know, a a character, me, glances over and sees some bats in one or something like that. So kind of adding more of those um, horror riffs and then – And then I think the third thing that I probably thought about adding was um, this background layer of kind of theory. So I referenced Julia Kristeva, who has this concept of kind of abjection. She's a philosopher, I guess, feminist philosopher who kind of um, developed this really good concept around thinking about bodies as sites of horror (laughs) and, um, so I think that's probably the last thing that got added in because I, you know, in my other life I work at a university and I I have a degree in um, politics and international relations and English literature, so I have just read a lot of theory. So that is always kind of bubbling in the back of my mind, you know. So I think Michelle Foucault and Truth Butler is also appears in that essay. So I probably went through and looked back at those texts and thought, you know, what interesting things do those people have to say about bodies and I think Judith Butler makes a really good observation about um, the way that kind of this idea of social reproduction works that we decide which are the bad bodies and which are the good body you know which is the unlivable body which is often the black body or the disabled body or the whatever body and then we decide which are the habitable non-abject bodies and 
so yeah, I think those are the kind of three layers that um that went into putting that piece together. Mm. Next chapter is called Shis Eating, and it's a which is a I suppose a controversial name in some ways, and it's about food, or at least about food and cult, food and food culture and how that plays out. Could you give an overview of what you were aiming for in this essay? Absolutely. Um, yeah, shit eating is probably <laughs> my favorite title in the book. Um, so that essay is a brief essay um, that kind of looks at my generous. So, for context, I am what you would call a millennial. I'm 28, and so I feel that my generation has developed this kind of um, interesting relationship with gourmet experiences and foodie culture and brunch. I think a lot of people in my generation would self-identify as foodies really readily. And what I've kind of always found fascinating about that is that I think that we seek these gourmet experiences and it's a big part of Australian food culture, which I think is like really obsessed maybe it's the impact of MasterChef but we're kind of really obsessed with these like one-of-a-kind food experiences which I'm totally I love them to be clear (laughs) Um, but I think what's interesting for me is that it often seems to be something that we seek in order to try to make ourselves feel better about how difficult modern life is for our generation you know working conditions are terrible a lot of us have precarious jobs or if we have um you know permanent full-time jobs they're ones that require extremely long hours from us and a lot of us are living with different kinds of precarity um so I guess what the title is kind of playing on is this idea of shit eating. You know, you talk about someone having having a shit eating smile on their face. Um, I guess I'm interested in thinking about how sometimes when people are smiling, it's only because they're covering up some real suffering. And But it's also a comment, I guess, on the gig economy. You know, so much of those food experiences that we get through meal delivery services, et cetera, rely on using um underpaid labor from usually like migrant laborers in this country who work for these kind of startups that we know pay below minimum wage um but also thinking about the fact that that you know we who use gig economy services shouldn't think that we are so separate from those people whose labor we um, employ we're all kind of suffering under capitalism to different degrees but we are in my view at least all suffering <laughs> mm. maybe that's because I'm a socialist that I feel that but um yeah it's kind of just meant to be a fun look at uh, foodie culture and what it means for us to quote-unquote enjoy these experiences when in fact we're all kind of just struggling to get through the day <laughs> mm. yeah um I like the comment that you had in here where you talk about when people go to cafes and the prices on the menu for relatively basic things, especially at brunch, you have this fascination with brunch, which I can understand, is that the a high price is great for the cafe owner because amongst the patrons it becomes almost a joke. So mm-hmm. it's sort of funny to pay it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, well, this is the millennial irony thing, right? But I think we're responding to 
it kind of became this like part of the kind of political discourse, right? The smash Davo and how um, expensive it is. And that's the reason that young people um, can't afford homes <laughs> anymore because, you know, it's kind of a way I think of deflecting from really having proper conversations about housing affordability and how that has significantly impacted the prospects of this generation to ever achieve the same living standards that the one before has had. So yes, there is a lot of tongue in cheek stuff in there about the smashed avo and brunch and how, yeah, you would go and try to have brunch to make yourself feel better about the fact that you'll never own a home. Right. <laughs> now I want to, reach out on the topic of suicide that comes up in this book. And I want to read a passage because it's, in the, it's in, at the end of this chapter and it makes a nice contrast. I'll read it just a bit. The, the section begins by saying, one must imagine the food delivery partner happy. He loves it. It's the best job he's ever had. He's just driving part-time to pay off student loans before he launches his startup. He's not on the edge of being deported because his asylum application was rejected. So the nice image there. Then you say, I'm not laughing. If I'm smiling, it's only because I'm glad the meal comes in a paper bag and because that's one less thing in the house to contemplate asphyxiating myself with. You say I joke about suicide, but at least I can admit how unhappy I am. I'm unhappy. We have that in common. Let's hold that in common. I'm not having a good time. Neither of us are. Um, now, that's a pretty personal thing to put in a book that you can anyone in the world can buy on Amazon, but you've done it. Can you... Um, so there must be relatively something you you want to say, and I imagine it's something worth saying. Can you unpack the sort of the, the, how the role of suicide in this book? Mm, yeah, um, it's true that there are kind of some there are some certainly some jokes about suicide in the book, usually about my own suicidal ideation, and it's something I've struggled with um, throughout my childhood and adolescence, and um, yeah, I think that. I kind of make, make those jokes that might come across as a little glib, um, partially because I'm kind of dead serious about it, but we have to find a way to laugh, which is kind of what shit eating is saying. We're all finding these silly little coping mechanisms to get through unprecedented times. We've just lived through a natural series of natural disasters <laughs> followed by a pandemic followed by the threat of ecological collapse followed by a massive recession and inflation blah 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 these are all very very bad things that we are trying to live through and we're still going to work and having brunch and drinking mimosas and i think sometimes i just think oh my god what are we doing here <laughs> um and i th you know the the conditions of modern life right now are full of mod cons but we also have some of the worst i'd say mental illness rate incidents including in the developed in the western world and then the question for me becomes well why do we all always feel so bad all the time i don't think i'm actually saying anything that unique and therefore that damning when i admit that sometimes i have suicidal ideation um i think a lot of us feel that way and we seem not to be generating solutions as quickly as we need to a lot of us are feeling a lack of hope i think and well i think it's okay to admit that i think a big part of the suicide taboo thing is yeah we're encouraged not to talk about it because it will mark us in some kind of way but i'm just not convinced that there aren't more people out there who think the same way i do honestly mm -hmm. thank you for that now I'll throw you a softball question. Um, 
you say it somewhere else in the book that your favourite movie is A Serious Man, which I think is the Coen Brothers film, if that's what, they've got the, right, the same film in mind. Uh, why is that? Um, oh, God, I love that movie. Um, I guess it's, yeah, it's my favourite English language film, which I pair in the book with my favourite Turkish language film um, later on, both of which... And in fact, I think all my favorite texts, I also talk about my favorite book being Kurt Vonnegut's Sirens of Titan. I think they all kind of play or flirt with the idea of absurdism. Um, You know, the idea that life is kind of strangely meaningless. We are all pulled around and pushed around in life by these forces that are so much larger than ourselves. We convince ourselves maybe that we can exert some kind of agency or control over the direction that our lives take, but really kind of not really. (laughs) We're all victims of luck and fate and fortune and circumstance, I think. And I think that is what a serious man gets at, you know, and it kind of has the same dark humor, sense of humor that I have. But, you know, it kind of tells the story of this protagonist who suddenly finds himself struggling. His personal, his perfect kind of ostensibly life is interrupted by the fact that, you know, his wife suddenly leaves him. His bid for tenure at university is interrupted. His kid is acting out, blah, blah, blah. Everything is suddenly going wrong and he's seeking answers, you know, from a rabbi and he's asking, well, why is all of this happening to me? And the answer is there is no answer. You know, suffering is one of those things that we are subjected to in this life. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess I'm really interested in that question of like fate or fortune or circumstance. Mm-hmm. Later on in the book, it's a, there is an essay called literacy. Um, I want you to ask you about that. And just as a way to f- frame what you're going to talk about, when I was reading through it, I thought, oh, this is interesting. There's all these funny asides, literary criticism here and, and, stuck up professors and and um taking things too seriously and and i actually made a note when i was reading oh this feels like it's um this is this is nice but it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere but then you then explain this is how it was really good but then you turn around and start saying how this is your creative outlet Mm. so i wanted to go and then i thought oh so it brings the essay home really well because it sort of takes you it's like a journey it takes you somewhere can you um talk about that essay and that concept of literary criticism being one of your creative outlets a form of creativity you say for sure thank you for being honest by the way I had a lot of issues with that essay to be completely honest um because for a long time I didn't know what I was saying with that essay it just felt important to me to talk about how important literary criticism is to me while also nodding to the fact that it's kind of not that important in, in at the same and to be clear I am I probably come across as super stuck up as I said I like went to university I read all this theory and then I like loved it um but it is this kind of escapist thing for me which I'm sure a lot of people would relate to you know reading and writing as ways of escaping (laughs) the real world a lot of the time um even if those kinds of things that we read supply really important insights about the real world but yeah I guess I that essay just talks about kind of different experiences I've had learning to read. Um, I talk about, you know, my mother teaching me to read, you know, and become literate. But then I also talk about learning to read these kinds of pieces of theory and how those pieces of theory actually generate insights about the real world. Like if I hadn't read post-colonial theory or feminist theory, I probably wouldn't have understood the impact of um, 
gendered violence on my family. I wouldn't have understood trauma. I wouldn't have understood all these things that have actually helped me so much. So I think that learning to read has helped me figure out what is actually going on around me. And then there's also the element of play and fun. I think that the reason so many of us read and write is that it's kind of just this playful medium and maybe it doesn't need to be all that serious. Mm. You then in that same later on in that same chapter, I want to ask you to explain this this concept. Um, it says, but I do not think that it is a radical act to read reparatively, guided by a desire to formulate the most generous interpretations possible. Could you unpack that? Mm, do you mind if I just take a little peek? Sometimes I I do think I do think that it is a radical act. Yeah. Um, yeah, so reparative reading is this concept that I've taken from the queer theorist Eve Cetric. Um, she kind of says that she's specifically talking about how people read literature on uh, different critical traditions, and she's contrasting this concept she proposes called um, reparative reading against, um, oh gosh, what is it, kind of cynical reading or... Paranoid. Paranoid reading, that's it. But she says that the tr- a, a growing tradition, especially in queer literary circles, is to read texts in kind of the worst possible, most cynical light. And I talk about um, one text that I really appreciated growing up called um, Morris by E.M. Forster and how the critical tradition around that has been to say that it is a terrible text. Um, I will try not to too extensively talk about it, but it's written by E.M. Forster who... <clears throat> was writing throughout the 1900s and he was kind of a closeted gay man in his lifetime. And he wrote this book called Morris, which is a gay love story that has a happy ending. And he put it aside. Um, He kind of workshopped it extensively. So it was known within his smaller circles that he was writing this book, but he put it aside um, for it to be published posthumously. And he said, you know, he was kind of sending it into the future for a, into a world when it would be acceptable to write about this kind of subject matter and for him to out himself. So he dedicates it to a happier year. Um, and then critics looked at this book that was published in 1971 and they thought, oh my God, this is horrible. It's wish fulfillment. It's a fantasy. This happy ending is so juvenile and childish. And they, and the two protagonists run away at the end of the book and escape into kind of the forest effectively of of England and they live out their lives happily as woodcutters Um, and critics hated the book. And so I kind of found this idea of paranoid versus reparative reading and it helped me read that book, which I loved. I didn't realize that people hated it so much when I was younger. And, And I thought that was a perfect example of paranoid reading, this impulse to kind of view cynicism as the right way to approach the world. Whereas reparative reading says, well, why don't we kind of look at these texts and try to figure out what might actually be redemptive about them? What in there can we actually take out? Um, And so I think it's important to also apply reparative reading to my own life. You know, I kind of talk about my relationship with some family members in the book and it would be easy to conclude that they're just bad, you know, and terrible but what is far harder and a more complicated journey is to try to figure out why they are that way um, and what is re- like what redemption you can maybe find in those relationships if you want to. Um, so, yeah, I think that's kind of what I'm using by pulling reparative reading through that essay. Now we have to finish up relatively soon. I wanted to ask you about the poem you quote at the start of Tell All. It's a Lanston Hughes poem. Um, could if you wouldn't mind, would you be able to just to, to read it? It's only about 
12 words <laughs> and explain what that means to you. Yeah, of course. How exciting. I love this poem. <laughs> um, he writes, I could tell you if I wanted to what makes me what I am, but I don't really want to and you don't give a damn. Um, it was very significant for me to have this as the kind of epigraph on this um, particular essay called Tell All. Uh, it cost me a pretty penny to reproduce the whole poem, but <laughs> I still wanted to. Um, I think that this particular essay is towards the end of the book and it's kind of me thinking more um, critically or deeply about what it means to write confessionally. You know, it's a very popular genre medium, especially for women actually to write these kind of tell-all memoirs. And this isn't a tell-all by any means. And I'm kind of tracking through why I concluded that I wouldn't tell all and couldn't tell all and in fact refused to tell all <laughs> in some ways. Um, so the essay is kind of looking at this injunction, I guess, placed on us in the modern world to confess. You know, we have to confess in so many ways. We don't just confess, you know, in church anymore. We confess our medical history. We confess by being surveilled at work. Um, we can, you know, we confess by Googling things and then suddenly all of our data is just there, a document for anyone else to read if they wanted to, to know absolutely every desire of our soul. Um, so I think that there's kind of this dangerous edge to the, the injunction to confess that we have. But then at the same time, I think that there is something like beautiful about confession. We clearly possess that instinct. We really want to confess, right? We always want to share with others. We want to, as I say in the essay, tell people what the worst thing we've ever done is. <laughs> um, and we want to know that about other people. We just simply want to know. So I don't want to come down too hard on confession and say it's bad, bad, bad. I think that um, I'm interested in also thinking about what kinds of um, relations that that kind of confessing helps us to build. So, yeah, that I'd say that essay kind of comments on the whole book itself by kind of saying, well, this isn't a straight up and down memoir because I think that's a little maybe dangerous, although some people, of course, choose to write memoir and that's great. Um, yeah, just kind of unpacking those questions. Mm. Now, a final question is you told us that you're 28 years old. Putting a, a book of essays, I imagine, is always a relatively brave thing to put out or one, because it's so open to you read an essay and you have a view on it. People suddenly have a view on it. So it can, I imagine you could get crit praised, criticised, etc. Is there any fear in you as putting out a book of essays, particularly at 28, which I would consider a young age to do something mm. or for a publisher, especially to back you into doing something like this. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. I am relatively young. Um, and of course there is um, anyone who writes personally, I think knows that they're exposing themselves to the possibility that they'll be disliked. It is a very vulnerable act and, uh, yeah, I do feel that I need to steal myself, but I also can't control whether or not people do or don't like me. Um, you know, I haven't been able to do it up until this stage, probably never going to be able to do it. <laughs> uh, and I guess all I can do is, like, not seek to deny anyone that experience of disliking me. You know, it's kind of other people's prerogative as long as I feel I'm not doing harm in the world. Um 
So, yeah, these are all things that I'm, of course, having to nut through. And I did have conversations with my publisher about the book. And it is a really stripped back book. You know, it's not just me publishing my diary. It's important that people know that it is an act of craft. And even though it's personal, it's not me. You know, I still have me, myself, my kind of personal existence. This is a book that happens to contain personal accounts, but it is still separate from me in like a fun kind of fundamental way. Um, so yeah, and you're right, I am 28, but um, you know, I've certainly regretted things in my life um, that were the result of not acting. So I don't know. I feel like you can't do nothing in life. No, well, thank you, Ella, for that. That's um, The book is called Root and Branch, Essays on Inheritance by Ella Gunnidin. It is available now on online, of course, and in bookstores, especially, or I've seen them around in Sydney. It's worth getting, I think. It's um, I love books about Sydney, but it's great to have a book about Sydney. It also touches on those types of experiences, immigration, culture. Ch- the chapters are broken up. Some are quite deep and detailed. Others have a, 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 a nice lot of humour about them. It's great. And... Edda, once again, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Thank you. This has been another episode on the Australian and New Zealand channel of the New Books Network. I'm Bede Haynes. Thank you.